number you have dialed has been changed. The new number is... Welcome to the Stuart Knight Show, where interesting, intriguing, and exciting people engage in unscripted exchanges of ideas, stories, and perspectives. It's not an interview. It's a powerful conversation. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Stuart Knight Show. I am so glad that you could join me today because I have a very cool guest that is going to make you think quite differently about a lot of different things that she has done for me. And uh, as usual, guys, the whole point of this show is to kind of get you maybe being open to the idea of boycotting some of your old ways of thinking and to embrace a, a way of thinking that might lead you to a greater version of the person that you are. And I know you're a fantastic person, but I always want to push you to kind of expand your limits even further and to really re-envision uh, perhaps some of those relationships that you have with all aspects of your life. And to help me do that today, I have Sarah Hader. Sarah is an American activist. She's a speaker and executive director of Ex-Muslims of North America. She's born in Pakistan and has been raised in Texas. Sarah spent her early youth as a practicing Muslim and then left the religion in her late teens. And she's got all kinds of things to share with us about that experience. Today, she advocates for the acceptance of religious dissent and works to create local support communities for those who have left Islam. In addition to free thought, Sarah is particularly passionate about civil liberties and women's rights. And she's been profiled and featured in numerous magazines, news outlets, and shows, including The Economist, Slate, BBC, Global Journalist, Quillette, National review and the daily beast and npr so sarah welcome to the show i'm so happy to be here you know what i can hear it in your voice we're gonna have you <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna we are gonna have a good conversation now for those who are listening sarah and i have not known each other for a long time but when we're not on the air we get into all kinds of uh co- separate conversations conversations around about life i think we're both just equally um uh, is excited about this incredible thing that we call life, and uh, and we always like to dig deep into it. So so let's let's not even waste any time. Let, let's jump into that right now, Sarah. Um, I I just I just love what it is that you've had the guts to do. It's something that is so uncommon. First of all, leaving a religion, okay, is different for different people. Uh, if there's, let's say for example you're a Jehovah's Witness, it's probably a bigger deal leaving that than it might be living leaving. Um, I don't know, uh, a, a family who doesn't really practice their religion too, too much. Um, whereas leaving Islam is a really big deal for someone like yourself, especially if you're coming from a family that uh, practices and that takes their faith very seriously. And so not only did you leave your faith, but you also went down the path of creating an organization that helps other people who are thinking that way. You're not promoting it. But you're saying, hey, we're here if you do decide to leave and you are feeling, let's say, ostracized. We've created a space for you to, to navigate through those feelings. So, so first of all, congratulations to you for even doing it. But is it scary? Is it scary to be you? <laughs> um, you know, I think it's so exciting to be me. And I'm, of course, there are times where I'm scared of what's happening. But that is, you know, the other side of of doing something exciting and interesting is to maybe be frightened here or there, because then if you don't do, if you don't do something that's a little bit scary, sometimes um, you might end up uh, being bored or being the kind of person who doesn't really do 
anything, um, you know, that, that is really making a change in the world. So, you know, I, I'm really just uh, blown away that I have been able to engage in this for as many years as I have. I never thought that our organization would take off. It started off as just these, this little group of volunteers and now we've grown and uh, we continue to, um, you know, do new things and have new projects. And it's starting to look like this is something maybe I could do um, for a lifetime or at least for a couple of more years, which is just shocking to me that there's there's a need out there and a desire out there and that, um, you know, people want to see us succeed. So what is the main thing that you do at Ex-Muslims of uh, North America? If you, I, mean, I know you do many different things, but what's the main thing that people are coming to you for? Well, um, so I, my, my particular role is at, as executive director. So I'm just like the top manager really. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do a variety of projects. Um, the one that we are most well known for is the one that is the project we started off with, which is our community building. Um, we build these, these, um, networks of support, um, across the United States and Canada, um, which help ex-Muslims, uh, you know, give them a space just to really be themselves. And these communities are exclusive to ex-Muslims. So you have to come in through kind of a screening process. Um, we don't just let, it's not open to the public. It's not something anyone can access. Um, so that the people who join can feel a little bit of a security, some, you know, a little, a measure of safety, because it really can be dangerous to leave the faith. And for many people, they're, they're in the closet. They're not telling anybody. They're not telling their parents. They're not telling even you know, their, their, their best friends, they don't know. So, um, because of that really real danger that some people have, or they're just, you know, they're just not ready for the negative consequences. Um, we have to keep these communities secret. So then, um, if someone comes to you, is it always a case that they want to leave the faith or is it more of it? Like sometimes they're just exploring that idea. Um, for, for our purposes, for our communities, um, we accept people who've already left. We're not really, um, the communities themselves are not a place for, we think for 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 super questioning people, it's for people who have already reached the end of that journey and want to have a space where they can just um, relax and feel like they're not being judged for who they are. But our organization also um, engages in a lot of projects that have to do with education and um, knowledge creation and getting people to understand what it is a religious dissent means um, and what are all the different things that can provoke um, doubting in faith. And what are all the problems that we, as people who were believers and now have left, um, find within religious communities and feel that we should all work together to fix? Okay. And, and why is it important for people to, um, or is it important for people to, to uh, be a religious dissenter or to at least question their faith? You know, I mean, it's it's interesting because now that I'm so focused on this particular thing, right? Like, and not, not too many people are, you know, working in the space that I'm working in. So they don't, they don't have this time and, and interest and energy into, to pouring directly into the effect of religion and of one particular religion on certain communities and even whole countries. Um, but it's, I, I think that it's very easy to make the case. And I think there's a very strong case to be made about all the ways in which religious thinking, and we can in generalize away from religion in general, but just religious thinking, what you can call dogmatic thinking, um, that and the ways that it harms communities, the ways that it harms individuals, the ways that it harms the prosperity of 
countries or you know at, at large and there there are a thousand different ways that it can do this especially if it is um a religion in particular especially if it is something that tells you um this is coming directly from god as you know the truth that you must accept and if you don't accept well here's such and such will do such and such to you right. um so there's that element of coercion too with that um uh, with religion i mean and it's such an effective killer of free thought and it is so you know and we can we can see this in so many different ways and in the muslim world too it's 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 very clear um i was looking into not too long ago just the effects of um the, the muslim world not having the printing press right. for hundreds of years um, after it was invented, um, partially, I think, even largely because of the implications that religious scholars found, that they thought that this might increase heresy or might, might make it more likely. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's that that is so shocking if you think about just that one thing, the fact that the printing press, here's a whole part of the world that didn't get the printing press for hundreds of years after it was invented. Imagine if the same was said for the internet, right? I mean, how many different ways did that impede progress and all the different things that we can do to make life better for everyone? That's fascinating. Um, I, didn't, I didn't realize that. You know, it's funny, I was reading an article not too long ago where they'd asked some of the top thinkers in the world to uh, name what they thought was the greatest invention of all time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, there are many answers, but the most popular answer was the printing press. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's just, so that's uh, in 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 uh, that specific domain that I think is very, it's very powerful. But I have scientists and, and, and researchers from the Muslim world who reach out to me and tell me about their experiences, particularly people who are professors and, you know, teaching at teaching at schools. And they tell me about their difficulties in, in, um, it, in engaging with students, um, once in a while they'll get. Sometimes they'll get very religious students um, who may feel like some of the things that they're saying is blasphemy. And so there's just this um, this difficulty that these people, these knowledge creators, feel. Um, and uh, I I feel like how I mean how it, it's it's impossible that this isn't um, such a negative thing, you know. And it's it, and another way I think that most people are probably aware of is the the effect of religion in in the advancement of um human rights right um in the islamic world that's pretty clear i think and in a lot of different domains but the the issue that i focus on is women's rights um a couple of years ago there was just for one example and there are so many examples but just for one example a couple of years ago there was um a, a bill that that some lawmakers wanted to pass in 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 Pakistan about domestic violence and making domestic violence illegal. Um, prior to that, domestic violence wasn't illegal because it was thought that the man, that the husband, has um, a right over his wife and he has a right to discipline his wife. And that right is rooted in um, some Quranic scripture. Right. Um, and when this law was proposed and when people were campaigning for it, um, there were. I think dozens and dozens of religious organizations and groups that came up to protest this law um, because they felt like it was heresy. And, you know, and then that's one very clear, very stark way um, that it's just, you can just see how, how religion impacts the development of, of that country. And it's interesting because, you know, at the end of the day, my perspective has always been, I have a feeling you probably feel the same way. I don't, 
care what you believe in. If you want to believe the Easter Bunny uh, created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, by all means, I think you should have every right to believe that as, as much as you should have a right to say what you want to say as long as it doesn't incite violence. However, um, I don't think you should have the right to teach it or to impede on someone else's right uh, in the process, right? And so I've always uh, felt that on some level, uh, maybe illegal is too strong of a word, but for lack of a better word, that it should be illegal for, for, for adults to teach their children um, these ideas. Because I believe that as a society, if, if, if adults were to teach um, their children that, I don't know, in the future, uh, pressing the brakes on a car uh, is not important, I think that mm-hmm. we would say, no, that's child abuse because there could be a day where they're in a car and they're going to need to press the brakes in order to not die. Whereas there are many ways in which religion um, hurts people such that you know, they, they, they believe in ideas today that in the future will cause them to have either maybe a mental anxiety or some people do commit suicide. Some people do um, enter into horrific situations where perhaps they're homosexual and, and, and for fear of being ostracized by the community, they, they just enter into a, um, a, a more traditional uh, uh, relationship and, and, and the pain that causes. And so if you start looking at the correlation, you would see that you know, maybe it's not right for us to allow people to teach young people these things. By all means, believe it. But, mm-hmm. but, but should, they be, should they be allowed to teach this? Should, be this? should this be against the law? Well, um, so I, I come from the the way that I approach what we should or shouldn't be allowed to do is generally from a from a perspective that's heavily grounded in civil liberties. Mm-hmm. And this means that sometimes I'm going to say some some things should be allowed that I personally find very distasteful. And while I, you know, I agree with you that religion leads to all these harms and especially, you know, in the domain that you mentioned that I don't don't think gets enough attention is that of mental health um, and what it can do to a person, especially a child's sense of self and um, how they can feel about their place in the world. Um, But uh, I, I think and maybe this is just grounded from my experience in the, in, the, in the Muslim communities, but it was less that I was brainwashed into faith necessarily, that, that I was just forced into it, but that I was um, isolated from other ways of thinking mm-hmm. um, so that I did not have the ability to make my choice. You know, and, and, and you know, if, if in, in, in other domains, teenagers and, you know, even young adults rebel from their parents almost in, instinctively. Mm-hmm. Um but in certain in certain ways, we make it very difficult for them to do that, for them to explore other ways of thinking and of being. Um, so if I, you know, have a child, I would certainly teach them my way of thinking about the world. But I hope that I will also give them the tools to embark on their own path right. and to, you know, and to to think for themselves. Um, it, unfortunately, in religious communities. Um, just the idea of thinking for yourself and of in- just just entertaining, merely entertaining um, the the claims of another another way of thinking is in itself heresy, and that in is in itself is such a sin um, that uh, a lot of people don't even contemplate going anywhere near it. And I think that is one way that make that religion is an especially um, insidious, uh, you know, mental constraint. 
It, yeah, it's interesting. It, I, I just thought of it in this way, and I've never thought about it this way before, um, and it might just be so obvious to you, but for me, it's, it's, it's a brand new way of looking at it, and that is, imagine uh, a parent, in this case, using that example, uh, saying to a child, it, I am of the belief that jazz music is the best music ever to have been um, created, and in fact, for that reason, I will not listen to any other music. Um, and I would think that jazz music for you is the best music for you to listen to throughout your life. Um, and then to go one step further and say, and in fact, to prove it, I'm not going to let you listen to any other music. <laughs> right? I, you, you're not even allowed to touch uh, or hear uh, R&B or hip-hop or, or, or whatever, pop music. And, uh, and in fact, I'll go one step further and say, if you do listen to that, um, here are a list of bad things that will happen to you. And... Physically, I might even hurt you, or I might mm -hmm. do something bad to you, or I might make you feel so bad about the person that you are. And, 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 I, and, and I think that to me, I never thought about it that way, which is basically what you're saying is, is that um, it's, it's, it's wrong for us to not at least let people know that there are other forms of music. Mm -hmm. and, and it's, it's the aspects of religion that I think are especially harmful are, you know, the, the, the bits that you said towards the end that make it just impossible for people, for people, especially for people who, you know, young kids. And I remember as a child, I remember discussing hell with my cousins, you know, and, and my siblings. And um, I remember how terrified some of the younger kids would get. And when we would discuss it and we would be talking about it and they would start shaking, they would start crying um, because it was a genuinely scary. It was a scary thing. Mm -hmm. And for a child um, to, you know, it's, it's, it, in some ways it can be, it can be traumatizing and it's shocking to me. And, and I don't know if, I don't know if Christianity has this, but we have very grisly descriptions of what goes on right. in hell. And that's part of scaring you into behaving a certain way. Um, and I think about the way that that, that that affects children and what that does to them. Um, but for me, it was, I, I focus as much as I can on giving people freedom. Um, and that, unfortunately does mean freedom to sometimes be not so great people mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, hold not so wonderful ideas. Um, but to create a climate in which it's easier to question, uh, in which people can abandon certain views and move on to other ones, particularly within families and within communities. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. That I, and I think that you, you make a, um, I think it's. I think that the, the, in the crux of this conversation, we have to focus our attention on children. Um, it's one thing to say something to an adult and to try and steer their thinking from one thing to another, but that adult is at least equipped with a certain, uh, I, I would say, repertoire of tools that they can tap into to at least debate back or to disagree or to at least feel strong enough and confident enough to um, have the brain power to at least break down your argument. Whereas a child, mm -hmm. everything is, is taken so literally. In fact, I, I had a situation not too long ago where um, I went into the front closet of my house and my daughter was there and her grandfather was, was there and she was telling the grandfather that sometimes monsters live in the closet. And I had uh, told her that, and, and I had done that, I think for some sort of reason, maybe I just didn't want her to go into the closet. And, um, 
So I decided to ham it up a little bit, and I pretended as I was getting his jacket out of the closet that I had been grabbed by a monster. And I was, and being a, a performer throughout my entire life, I can get into character pretty well, uh, pretty well. And I was really being dragged in um, to the closet, and I was fighting um, this monster. And I finally, I finally broke free. And we all, we all kind of laughed it off. Wasn't that funny? And she got scared, and we but didn't think much of it. It was more to have fun with her. And uh, now, fast forward a month later, my daughter won't even sit on the couch that's even close to the closet. <laughs> Um, oh, no. <laughs> and I can be in the kitchen, which I Sarah, I'm like maybe 15 feet away from her. I'm like, honey, I'm just getting a glass of water. And she jumps up to come into the kitchen with me to get a glass of water to go back to the couch. And, mm. and, and I feel horrible for what I've done. <laughs> and, and I, and I, I, it's, it's been a good parenting lesson and I'll, and I'll do things differently in the future. But it just goes to show that these children, they take this stuff seriously. They, they believe us. Mm-hmm. And we mm-hmm. have to take that. That's a that's a role that we take seriously. We have to take seriously. So so well, here's the argument, though. We always know that everybody who's religious, every time these kinds of debates come up, they always say the same thing. They'll say, "Well, look at all the happiness and joy that religion brings to the lives of other people." They say, "You know, we they we, we go around the world, we feed the homeless, and we help uh, bring medicine to the needy." Um, what are your what what is your argument to that when people always talk about all the the, the good that that yeah, that yes, religion does do. Well, I mean, I, I, I don't see any reason for, first of all, like there, there are so many organizations that are secular in mission and in the work that they do, and they manage to do a lot of good in the world and provide a lot of services to people without being affiliated with a religious faith. Right. Um, you know, so it's, it's one of those things that, is it necessary? Um, can we do the good that religion does do? Can we provide people with those? We can do, we can talk about literal services like charities and nonprofits, but we can also talk about, um, you know, maybe the positive aspects of, of religious, um, of religious belief. Um, and maybe the, maybe it can make you feel calm about what's going on because the thought of death frightens you, or maybe you can make coping, uh, easier when a, a, loved one passes away well those there are benefits to faith and i i would never um deny that those exist because i remember feeling them yeah um when i was religious and i remember that that being that when i left faith that there were certain aspects of it that was that was difficult it was difficult to leave behind mm-hmm. um but having said that the question i think is is that is religion religion necessary for those ne- positive benefits to to occur Right. And in some cases, I think the answer would be maybe yes. But in many cases, I think the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to agree with you there. I've always felt it odd that people will uh, be so quick to almost claim that religion invented uh, compassion uh, mm-hmm. or, or love. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, if, if, uh, if religion didn't exist, I still don't think that people would feel comfortable just walking over to their neighbor's house and, and shooting them and killing them. Um, but it's, I, I think it's an odd thing to suggest that because they're religious, they, they have this kind of almost set of moral guidelines that they use as a way of operating in life. And that somehow if those moral guidelines weren't there, that they would just be these, uh, reckless, barbaric people going around and sleeping with everyone's <laughs> wives and, and <laughs> yeah. stabbing everyone. Yeah. Um, so, so then for you, what, what was your experience leaving the religion? Like, was it a, a day where you, did you just walk in the house one day and say, I'm out of here? Or was it more of a gradual thing? Like, what did that look like? When how did you break it to your parents? Yeah, well, I I, I use the um, 
the metaphor that it was it was death by a thousand cuts. Right. It wasn't something that happened. There wasn't any one particular thing I remember that really rocked uh, my faith enough to destabilize it completely. But many things, and they occurred um, like around the same time. So this this questioning process when I was really looking into all the different elements of of faith, the historical claims that they were making that this stuff literally happened and this is how it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the uh, scientific claims that they were making about the reality of the natural world, um, the moral claims that they were making that this is the right way to live and, and that this is the best way to live and this is the most virtuous way to live. So it was all these different things that I was starting to think about as I was getting to be kind of a young adult. And um, it was just, it was all very new to me to even be able to think about things Mm -hmm. like this. And here's where I was lucky, even though um, generally speaking, you know, Muslims are pretty religious and even a liberal Muslim household like the one I grew up in is quite religious um, and much more restrictive, I think, than 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 many other um, mainstream religions in the West. So even as a liberal Muslim, I was, you know, I didn't wear, I wore my first pair of shorts when I was like 20. You know? Oh, <laughs> and that, that right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah and, and even now I, I don't uh, dress a certain way when, I, when I'm with my community and when I'm with my family, just out of respect for them. Right. Um, but I was expected to, you know, not date. I was expected to, you know, just, probably an arranged marriage, but definitely uh, a marriage where there was no, um, there was no sexual activity prior to. And those were all expectations. And I had accepted them up until the part that I started questioning. And the one way that I was a little bit luckier than, than I think many other people um, is that my father was a little bit more open-minded in terms of allowing me to think openly and to explore other ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. So he didn't discourage it in the way that I think sometimes parents do. And he wasn't um, afraid of what would happen if I did read certain books or think about certain things. I remember I even bought um, the Richard Dawkins God Delusion. Okay. (laughs) Um, I brought it home and it was this big, like, I was like scared. I was like, what's going to happen? Right when I go home with this, um, um, and it was like a statement, this was rebellious thing that I was going to do. And I remember my, how how, how old were you at this time? I I must've been 16 because I was already, I was already an atheist, but I hadn't told anybody. Okay. Um, and were you dressing a certain way? Were you uh, like wearing a, a traditional, Muslim clothing, like as far as like a hijab or a... yeah, I, I never, I was never forced to wear a hijab. So I was again, the, this is the many ways in which I was somewhat privileged, okay, um, with my upbringing. But um, so you I walk did, in yeah. So yeah. I, I, I walk in. I, well, I did actually put on the hijab by choice okay. for like six months okay. when I was when I was younger. All right. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I, I walked in and I remember the conversation that I had with my father and. I just phrased it as I'm just exploring these ideas. I'm just thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And um, to my surprise, uh, but also, you know, to my great, uh, you know, this, I can't, maybe it is just luck, right? That I just ended up having a kind of parent who would tolerate this. Um, And my father allowed me to do it. He allowed me to question and allowed me to look into it. Some of it was his own faith. He thought that if I really looked into things and if I really read everything, I would end up back in religion, okay. I would end up back because he was so confident that this was the right way. Right. Um, that he 
that he felt like he could allow me to explore. Okay. But in any case, um, it, this was already by the time that I was I was already an atheist. But in any case, I was reading into different things. I was being questioned. I was being I was exposed to other to atheists around me who were questioning my faith and who would ask me to explain things to them that they said, this is not moral, this is not right, how can you believe this? Mm -hmm. And then I would have to defend my own faith. And I remember that process of having to defend my faith. I would go back and I would look into the context of what happened and try and explain that verse. And it was really in that process, specifically, the process of trying to defend my faith that I <laughs> realized that the people who were, who, had, who were attacking it, who I was so offended by, um, actually had some good points. I see. Um, and maybe, maybe they had, maybe, maybe it wasn't all, you know, what it was cracked up to be. So that was, a, that was a major, that was definitely a major factor that I was actually actively questioned by other people, which is also why I think that now that I am an activist, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people dislike, um, the what they would call a militant atheism, you know, like what they, what they think being too upfront yeah. about, about finding other people's faiths problematic is in itself it's almost it's a rude thing to do it's an obnoxious thing to do it's a harmful thing to do that's what people say yeah um but with my experience although it was offensive to me while while it was happening to me it really was one of the biggest things that that pushed me into questioning because i might not have otherwise or maybe if 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 i was to question it would have happened much later right. than when it actually ended up happening. Well, and you know, and you raise a good point there, right? I mean, I have always been a big believer uh, that we're never going to get anywhere on anything if all we do is just try to yell our ideas at each other. Mm -hmm. And so there are, yes, a lot of atheists, and I think I've even fallen prey to this at some point in my life, where I've just become so passionate in the moment that I feel like I just need to get all this information out uh, in a raised voice or in a, in a passionate way in the moment and talk about uh, a guaranteed way of losing a listener. And so yet, though, at the same time, the point you're making is, is that if we don't say anything at all, then where is the opportunity for us to debate these ideas? Is if Because I think that, I think that it was, um, what was it, uh, Ricky Gervais had made a good point about this. He said, the, gra the, the greatest um, accomplishment of religion is not that it managed to get everyone uh, believing that these things are real. He said it was actually making everyone else who's not religious believe they're not allowed to talk about it. Mm. And, and, I, and I'm saying it in a way that it's probably not the way he said it. But um, I, I felt like that was uh, a really good point. And I've, I remember getting um, – I think I may have mentioned this to you one time, but I was gonna, going to be going over to a friend's house for dinner. And he had a bunch of people coming from different walks of life. And he had text messaged me before and said, hey, just so you know, one of my friends that's coming is a minister. And I said, cool. And he said, so if you wouldn't mind, just please be on your best behavior. <laughs> <laughs> and I jokingly text messaged back. I said, yeah, I can do that. But just for the record, she's the one who's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and I was doing that to just to be funny. But um, the point is, is that even leading into a dinner party, he is uh, preemptively setting the ground rules that says, this person's going to come in with a set of ideas and I would prefer it if no one challenges her on her ideas. And I get that if we were to challenge anyone, we should be respectful. But to not challenge at all, to me, is one of the greatest um, fallacies of our time, one of the, one of the biggest uh, misdeeds we've done to ourselves. Right. I mean, it's such an effective social taboo. And if you think about it, there really isn't 
there aren't many other facets of of life and especially of of um things like civil rights or um, any any other way that we would you know be trying to push progress in the world where we would say well it's just not polite to talk to somebody who doesn't agree with you right. you know like let's say i care so much so deeply about gay rights um and the idea that i should shut up when i'm in a room full of people who disagree with me mm-hmm. i mean i think it's it's easy for people to see how this is this is something that makes progress difficult right. and this is something that gets in the way of us discussing issues that really need to be discussed yeah. and it would be a very different matter if people's religious beliefs didn't have a an impact in how um, you know in how we live how they live their lives and how how the world you know um, is and why why certain things are the way they are. Right. If it had no effect, of course I wouldn't care. Yeah. <laughs> then you know you can believe in whatever you want. Totally. But yeah. it's very clear to me that religious belief absolutely has you know, a very serious effect in, in, from, from everything from, you know, the way we personally live our lives to how we relate to our family members and to our friends, what we think virtue is, how our politics, um, you know, are informed. I mean, there's, there's so many aspects of it that religion really does influence. And because it has such an oversized influence, it has to be discussed. Absolutely. And I, and I've always been a big believer that if anyone's going to make any type of big claim anywhere at any time, that they should be okay with someone challenging the claim. You know, if I if I come to that same dinner party and I say uh, I am of the belief that black people are not as good at math than Chinese people, I think that I've opened myself up because I'm making such a large claim that the people at that dinner table should say, "Well, where'd you get that idea from?" Or mm-hmm. do you have any evidence to to believe to to show me that that's true? Or um, what's been your experience that um, <laughs> that that has made you believe that? Or whatever. I should be challenged on that thought because I don't have any evidence to be able to make such a ridiculous claim. Whereas if someone else at the dinner table says to me, um, "Well," and I tell them about a personal experience that I just went through, and then they say, "Well, you know what? You know who you have to thank for that," and I said, "No, who?" And they're like, "God." God, God got you through that period. I believe what you've done is you've given me the opportunity to say, well, I, can you, could you, could you, could you expand on that? You right. Right. Well, that's a, that's a thing. I mean, there, they, that religion is brought up all the time by mm-hmm. religious people. And I think, you know, I'm, I guess I, I'm perhaps we're, we're, we're probably the same in this way that I, I don't really bring up religion unless, unless it comes up with something like this, unless yeah. someone tells me, Oh, you know, the, this woman, she, she, you know, she was in the hospital, but thanks to all the prayers and mm-hmm. thanks to God, she survives. And then, that, and then I will introduce and say, no, it was the doctors. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. No, it was, it was, it was the fact that the medics got to her in time. It was the fact that, you know, we have this heritage and history of, I mean, and, and it's not, I, I can see how people think that, you know, that this can be annoying, but I think that it's also one of those things that um, speaks to our own privilege when we live in relatively well-off communities, relatively educated parts of the world where we can say that, oh, you should just let it go. Um, But all over the world, and even in communities within our own countries, um, these religious beliefs really can make a, you know, a world of a difference um, in someone's life. And they, in some cases, a a very harmful, you know, like a very harmful difference. So it does, it still matters and it's still something worth talking about. And it's still something worth bringing up. Um, in the case of, of 
you know, many parts of in the United States that are deeply religious, um, like Bible Belt areas, you can't even really talk about the fact that you are an atheist. No. Or you can if you want to, and you might get fired, um, mm-hmm. and or you might, you know, your your wife might divorce you, mm-hmm. um, or you know, you're going to suffer true, real, real consequences that nobody wants to suffer. And in many Muslim communities, that's absolutely the case. Yes, yes, that that's so true. You know, it's. Um... Interesting. I was uh, finding myself in a, in a situation where I was, uh, I'd gone to Egypt last year, and I was in the Sahara Desert, and I'd gone on this trek with this guy, and my partner was with me, and and we were um, laying under the stars, and it was such a beautiful moment, and we'd eaten food together, and culturally we had bonded in the sense that we did those things that you do when it comes to bonding moments. You eat food together, and we played music together. We actually all got up and danced in the sand together. There was only four of us, and two Egyptian guys, and myself and my partner, and we're having this really wonderful connection, and then at one point we finally kind of slowed down the evening, and we're sitting around the campfire that we'd made, and somehow religion, or, or, not, or I'm not sure if it was even religion, or if it was just about history, had come up. And uh, at one point, I don't even know what I had said, but I had said something along the lines about how old human beings are. And this guy who, who had been so intellectual up until that point <laughs> said, well, I mean, human beings haven't been around that for that long. And I said, well, oh, no. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, they have. Of course they have. I said, we're talking millions of years. And he said, no, he started, he started laughing like I had just made the funniest joke of all time. And he said, that's so funny. He says, no, everyone knows that human beings have only been around since, um, well, the time of Muhammad is kind of like the area that he was referring to. And, and he was saying it's only, it's only been thousands of years. And I said, well, in Ethiopia, um, you do realize that they've actually uncovered uh, the remains of humans, it's, it's called Australopithecus. One of the original ones was they called her Lucy, and I said, I believe she's around four million years old. And he looked at me like I just said <laughs> that you do realize there are two planet Earths, and I'm looking at the other one. That that's not the moon. That's actually another planet. There's people living on that. He thought I was the craziest individual ever. And then, of course, later on in the conversation, he tells me about how even though female circumcision is no longer legal in Egypt, that his wife is still considering doing it to his three daughters. Oh, no. Yes. And I'm sitting there in this moment. I'm in the middle of the Sahara, and I'm, like, playing my I'm, – I'm, I'm, like, gauging my bets, thinking, okay, I know I can't sit here and, and, and not tell him that he should not do that. But at the same time, I need to be careful about – well, first of all, even my own safety – I'm in, the, mm-hmm. I'm in the middle of a desert. <laughs> I've got nothing. I'm with, there's two of us, them and there's two of, there's, there's two of us. And, and I thought, like, it was this very odd moment where I tried to as delicately po- and, and as possible try to, like, let him know that um, that is not going to be beneficial to your daughters. And I think that you've got a high likelihood of them, you know, really being hurt badly from that. And it was the most peculiar experience I'd had in many, many years and, and realizing that, yeah, like we cannot be quiet about this because there are three innocent young girls who are going to experience this. And I'm hoping that I can just somehow plant some seed in this guy's mind about this. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even, even male genital human, uh, mutilation, I mean, and I call it that now, Yeah. Um, but you know, it, circumcision, even in guys, it, in, in 
little boys, um, it has extremely harmful effects. And especially when it's done in, you know, non-sterile um, environments, um, there are boys who die all over the world yeah. um, because of infections, um, because of the, the way that such a thing happens. And so, you know, I mean, we have to be able to question this without, at the very least, and this should be the bare minimum, but the bare minimum does not exist in some places around the world, um, where you can do it, you can question without fear of um, someone harming you, hurting you, um, or the government coming after you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the reality is, is that there are, there are many countries across the world, uh, you, mo- most of them Muslim majority countries, um, that have these kinds of restrictions against questioning faith, um, against blasphemy, um, and against leaving religion altogether and saying that you're, you're an apostate, you're somebody who's, who used to believe, but you know what, I don't believe anymore. And I'm, and I want to talk about it. And that is actually illegal yeah. in so many countries. And it's that in itself is just it should shock everyone that such a thing exists, yes. that th- there are parts of the world where it is it is not legal to be born a Muslim or ha- have been raised a Muslim and then say, you know what, I don't believe anymore. And that's just this is just not me. And this is just not um, how I want to live my life. And I'm not going to hide it. Right. And that that in itself is is crime um, punishable by death in some countries that's in that's incredible and that should shock people um because it's not because we i mean we were talking just about all the social ways in which people um in which the, the questioning of religion um can be restricted but in addition there are so many parts of the world where forget about social factors um you're really worried about serious harm coming to you and coming to your family not just somebody not talking to you anymore not just being a social pariah but truly coming to maybe a grisly end. Um, right. And, you know, it, it, it should make us think about what role religion plays um, and, you know, it, and how it, it suppresses, um, you know, free thought and how it suppresses ways of us, you know, really coming to terms with reality as it is, whether it, whether that is that that's in, you know, in medicine or behavioral practices like like FGM, um, but also, you know, um, also just science, just physics, just learning about the nature of our world. Right, right. It's it's never I never thought about this, but you could actually make the argument based on real evidence, real facts um, that religion and and I know that we've been kind of focusing on on, on Islam, but it's also all religions because we know that um, many uh, religious Christian countries have all kinds of uh, th- things that they do that um, uh, that cause great pain. So we don't want it to make it just about one religion. But um, you could call this a human you could, you could call this a human rights issue. Mm-hmm. I never yeah. thought about it that way. You actually really could make the argument the same way that we could say uh, Ebola is 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 a, is a major issue that we got to stop in a particular country, or we could say you know that um, in China that or or North Korea maybe a better example where people are being thrown into these jails and 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 being um, uh, forced to do uh, hard labor or not even having access to uh, proper nutrition. Well, we all look at that and we say, that's a human rights issue. Yes, we should sanction North Korea. They shouldn't do that to their people. And yet when another country comes along and says, if you even question and use free speech uh, towards your own religion, we will kill you. And that people get killed. And that, that we don't, as a, as a species, say that's a human rights issue. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely is a human rights issue, and it's um, it's one of the it's one of the ways in which it, just moving forward to the ways that I do think it's it's changing um, in the Muslim world is that the internet has kind of changed all this, right? Um, at least for the time being. Um, and I'll tell you why I think there's, there's just only a window. It's not necessarily a door that's open forever. Okay. Um, there are, you know, just to start off, you we discussed all the ways in which there are social issues that that prevent people from leaving, but there's also literal physical, you know, restrictions, um, criminal statutes, um, all sorts of things. Maybe even mob violence, vigilante violence that can. Um, push dissent underground. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, uh, the, just the arrival of the internet had really, has really changed that. Um, especially for people who left behind all religion altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, if we were able to f- build, build communities online that started online and then later some of them became in person o- meetings as well. Um, but we we're able to organize in a way that we've never been able to organize and we were able to share knowledge in a way that we were never able to share knowledge. So before where you couldn't, you know, you couldn't interject if somebody talked about FGM, for example, or some other religious practice, you couldn't interject and correct them mm-hmm. in a way that we might freely do here. You in online, you know, you can be in Egypt, you can be in Pakistan, and you can, so long as you have a account that can't be traced, mm-hmm. you can pose those questions to others and you can really get them to think as well. And I think this has led to a real um, growth in, in religious dissent. Um, and um, I'm seeing the numbers of, of ex-Muslims. It's hard to have data on this, right? Because sure. it's one of those things nobody nobody talks about, nobody wants to openly admit to. So it's one of those things that has inherent difficulties in being measured. But from what we can tell, there's definitely a growth of people who are leaving behind religion altogether in Muslim countries. Right. Um, the question of whether or not they're open is a different one. Why I say that there's only a window, um, a temporarily open window, mm-hmm. That will close is that re- the the countries, Muslim majority countries, um, and the governments that want to stop people from thinking like this are understanding uh, how to control people over the internet and how to how to how to close down, shut down certain aspects of free and open communication online more and more every day. They're getting better and better adept at tracing people, at finding out uh, what's the root of um, certain, you know, spread of certain kind of literature, for example. Um, And as they grow more sophisticated, um, it's going to become harder for this sort of anonymous spread of knowledge for this, for this, you know, this place where suddenly where you can be free and no one's going to tell you anything and you're not going to get hurt um, doing it. That, that might not exist, um, uh, you know, a decade down the road. Um, we're lucky that, you know, some of these countries are just not that sophisticated, um, with their, with their online presence, um, and in monitoring their citizens as they definitely will be and are actively working to become. Interesting. Why do they care so much? Why do they, the people who are trying to quash those voices, why is it so important to them to do so? Why, why, cause why are they not inspired by the idea of having their own free thinking? I mean, it's, it's, I think some of it is just, if you really are a believer, and I, I understand this view, um, and I think this, this helps me to empathize with, with deeply religious people, in that they actually truly believe that what they're doing is good for the world, what they're doing is good for their fellow humanity, mm. and that when they, let's say, when, let's say I'm a, I'm, I'm a mother that's forcing my daughter 
to cover entirely. I'm forcing her uh, to stay away from uh, from boys or even I'm, I'm telling her she can't go out to get a college education because it's just too far and I don't trust her to be alone by herself. Let's, uh, you know, let, let's say I'm a, I'm a mother who's doing that. And if I believe, truly believe that if she commits all these sins, she will burn forever, literally be tortured forever. I will, How could I let my child, you know, how could I so... It, to the extent that I can control her, why wouldn't I control her right. so that she doesn't burn forever? Because it's a horrible thing. And as a loving parent, you would never want that to happen mm-hmm. to your own children. So this is where, you know, I think the conversation becomes a little bit um, convoluted in that it's not the case that all these horrible practices are happening all over the world because there are, you know, 1.5 billion people who are horrible people. You know, that's not what's happening. Right. What's happening is that they just they believe something, really, truly believe something um, for many reasons. Right. Many reasons that they're not allowed to think outside the box or whatever it is. Um, we can discuss all the ways that they're they're just led down this path. But regardless, here's where they've ended up, where they've ended up is um, in in an ideology, in a way of looking at the world that that. You know, if you are a good person, if you really are a good person, if you love your children, you will behave in in these ways towards them. You will you will restrict your children in this way. Mm-hmm. You will maybe you will beat them because it's better that they're that they you know are punished now and they learn. You know, a girl learns not to you know expose parts of her body now, um, so that she doesn't burn forever. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, remember, I remember dating a, a woman one time whose mother was a, a devout Christian and uh, she had come over to visit and uh, we said, you know, goodbye, have a great day. And then we went to bed that night at my girlfriend's house and uh, she, she hits her head on something hard underneath her pillow and she pulls out the pillow and there's a Bible. <laughs> and, uh, and her mother at that time, because my girlfriend who was a yoga instructor, and and still is, I, I believe this day. And and um, it was something that her mother genuinely believed that because she was a yoga instructor and had be kind of taken this more spiritual lifestyle, uh, where she didn't believe in a particular god, she was genuinely, as a mother, worried that her daughter would go to hell, and mm-hmm. was doing everything in her power. And and I'm not trying to sound funny when I say that. I, I mean, I genuinely know that she was her she was concerned for her child going to hell as much as she would be concerned for her for her daughter walking across the road and not looking both ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, and I think people don't pay enough attention. And I think especially this is this is the case in more educated circles where the people that we know who are believers um, might not necessarily be people who believe very literally. So we think that's just the way belief is, mm-hmm. except that's that's I think that that's a wrong way of, of looking at the faith and actually not true in the case of a lot of people in a way of a lot of believers um, in the Western world as well as um, outside of outside of here. Right. You know, it's funny. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, recently who's a man in his mid 70s and he's Jewish and, and goes to synagogue. And um, I said to him, I said, I, I got to ask you, I said, you know, I know you're a very smart guy, you're a worldly guy, and I know a lot of the people that in the community that go to synagogue where you live, it's an affluent community, almost all of them are university educated. How is it that so many, I, I would call it open-minded, astute, intellectual people can allow themselves to believe in such a, such a limited perspective? And he started laughing at me, he says, oh my God, he says, you think the people who go to synagogue believe in God? He said, yeah, said yeah. <laughs> 90% of them don't believe in God. He goes, we just go there because we like seeing each other. 
Yeah. And I was really quite surprised by that. And so, yeah, it makes you wonder what, you know, just because somebody goes to church or somebody, somebody goes to synagogue or mosque, maybe it doesn't always necessarily mean they believe in every single aspect of it. So, I mean, it, I think it depends. So, you know, what, what you were talking about with, um, with your friend at synagogue, I mean, I, that was my experience as well with, especially where I live, I live in a very highly educated, you know, um, part of the United States. So the people that are, who are religious here are really not religious in the way that I grew up being religious. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's fair to say, and it's safe to say that that this sort of religion this highly educated kind of religion that is really more of a spirituality is a privileged form of what religion looks like. And just because people do live like this here, um, I think we should remember that this is not the case for many, many, many um, believing people in the United States and also across the world um, who really do believe things literally and who really do allow it to um, formulate their their opinions on a variety of social issues, on a variety of policy issues. Um, I mean, we can look at civil rights and civil liberties um, it's the clear the clearest connection is with gay rights um, and the role that religious belief played there um, just to know that of course there's of course there's an effect and of course we have to um, start to question these religious beliefs too because there still are many people who are deriving their moral values through through this faith and they're they're good people and if we can convince them that maybe this isn't the perfect or 100 percent uh, truth out there, and there's other ways of looking at the world as well that are also virtuous. And um, then maybe we can make a lot of progress. So, so today here you are. You've got this um, organization that's that's uh, has quite a few members or people coming through it. What do your parents and your family think about you now? Do they first of all do they know that you have an organization called Ex Muslims of North America? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, they they know everything. Um, everybody knows everything. I mean, people from my family, extended family in 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 Pakistan, they're no, they're everybody. Everybody knows the whole community that my parents came from in Pakistan knows, and they share. You know, they'll they'll listen to something I said or or see, you know, somebody made a meme of something I said, and they'll pass it around and they'll share it with my uncles and, in, in, you know, in Pakistan, and I'll hear, like, I'll hear people complaining about me, mm-hmm. um, and um, pressuring my extended family to try and, you know, like, deal with me, handle this problem, this person who is bringing so much shame upon us. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty confident that everybody knows. Um, and how, even, and how even, is it going even for people I don't know. Yeah, my parents, um, they're having a tough time of it. Um, things are getting better for them now. But um, when I first, I mean, when I was first leaving the faith, I was one shock, one, you know, difficult pill to swallow. And then um, over time, they became accustomed to that. And then I did this other thing, which you really are not supposed to do, which is to advertise it and to push other people into like right. to try and try and create it create grounds for more people like me to, to exist um, and give them support when they do. So that was, that was the real, um, you know, the real, really difficult thing I think for my parents, um, especially in, from the culture they come up, come from, which is um, very much an honor-based culture and the, the, um, your status in the community matters. Uh, it's a, it's a very real thing and social ostracism is a very real thing and uh, losing the respect of your peers and of your community is a, is just 
extremely important to them. And, you know, they are immigrants, so they don't really, they, they still relate a lot to their culture from, you know, back home. They have a kind of a tough time relating in the same way with, um, you know, people who have been, who, who were raised in America. So they value this community. It mat- this is their social life. This is, you know, how they're, uh, this is how they meet other people and engage with other pe- people. Um, and that community has not been very good to them. Uh, now that they know uh, about me. And this is the unfortunate side effect of, um, you know, I guess being so liberal that my parents didn't really shun me. Um, it was very difficult for them for a long time, but they came to accept me over time. But because they accepted me, they are now being shunned by many people in their former community. So somebody had to pay. It wasn't me and it was my parents instead. And I feel this is one of those things that brings me such like intense guilt all the time. You know, anytime I hear about it, something happened or someone said something or they were, um, you know, being ostracized in one way or another, um, that makes me feel like, um, you know, I I, I almost wish that they would have just cut me off so that I, I was the one that just, you know, bore that burden because I'm also the one that is free. You know, I'm also the one that is now speaking my mind and getting to do what I want to do with the world. And, um, instead it's them who are suffering. And really that's one of those things that's people don't pay enough attention to, I think is the fact that it's not just about uh, one person walking away from, from the culture and, uh, and paving their own way. It's that even their own families, um, the people close to them are tainted by their, by their, you know, sinful lifestyle or their choices. And so they feel an intense pressure to force, you know, their loved one to change so that harm doesn't befall them. Right. So, just to kind of bring this whole conversation to an end, um, I would imagine there's a lot of people here who are listening to this podcast and and maybe not being able to relate from a religious perspective simply because they're not religious. And, and if anything, they might be going, yeah, I agree, I'm with you, but, but might be facing a lot of the same things from a different perspective. Maybe they don't want to work... Um, in a an environment that brings in a particular type of salary, uh, maybe they don't want to live uh, close to their parents anymore. Maybe they don't want to have kids. You know the kinds of things that they feel pressure to do because their parents want them to to uh, to, to to live a certain kind of lifestyle. Uh, you know, it's the it's the person that comes from a family of doctors who actually wants to join the circus, or it's the person who's who has eight brothers and sisters and they all have six kids, and you're the one person who doesn't want to have kids. You know, what would you say to them, to anyone who wants to live their own life and who wants to do something that might make other people um, either angry or ashamed or just not be accepted? You know, is it is it what what would you say to these people? Yeah, um, I mean, there's a lot of things to be said. And and you're right that there is there is a, a strong there's a definitely a correlation between the ways in which, you know, leaving religion can be difficult and really leaving any kind of uh, lifestyle or, or uh, being forced into behaving in a certain way uh, that you might not, you know, or, or being having a duty forced upon you by, by, by other people or feeling like it's forced, even if it's not actually forced. Um, You know, it's the hardest thing is being, the lone dissenter. You know, the hardest thing is being the one alone out there who makes that first step. Right. Um, that is, I mean, and I know now at this point there's studies on this about the psychology of, of what happens and, and um, why people are so fearful of being the first one to dissent and the extent to which 
human groups, you know, can withstand really absurd traditions and behaviors just to avoid being the first one that says, hey, wait a minute, right. um, this doesn't this doesn't make sense, or I don't want to do this, or um, because it, it really is something that is it's deep, it's deep within us, this tendency to avoid um, uh, being separated from our group, um, and to be to to pave our own way. I mean, we are social creatures. Mm. And you know, this is part of our adaption is to desire deeply to be part of a tribe. And so being that first one, whoever you are in any kind of, you know, lifestyle choice or or decision or belief system, just to just to be the first one to walk out is um, it, that's that's the person who's bearing a lot of burden on their shoulders. But um, the good news is, is that, you know, and I've seen this in my experience, not just from a religion perspective, but in so many different ways, there are especially if if a certain what it is that you're leaving behind or the choice that you're making, if it is the case that there are uh, that it actually is something that is um, unreasonable or maybe harmful in one way or another, you can bet that there are other people who are there with you. They agree with you. And they also are thinking about, you know, maybe I don't, I don't want to do this anymore, but they don't want to be the first. No one wants to be the first. So if, you know, you are willing to take that first step and are willing to have, um, that burden on your shoulders of being the first. And that means weathering the storm of ridicule from your community and from, you know, your friends and your family. What are you doing? Like this, this doesn't make any sense. If you're willing to weather that and the risk of really not knowing how this is all going to turn out, because if you really are the first to do something, you don't have a path to follow. Um, you know, it's, it's not so easy to know how is it going to end up, but if you can, if you can manage that strength and if you can manage that courage to make it out there, um, I think people would be surprised to see that it, someone else might join them, that 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 before not too long, you know, it won't take too long for them to not be alone. That was my experience um, with leaving faith. And I'm shocked that that it even happened the way that it happened, that after I left, there were so many other people who said that, well, I don't believe either. And when I said that I'm willing to be public about it, there were two, three people who were um, also public. And then when I when when I said it um it, it I know that it influenced other people to leave as well. And it's influenced other people to be outspoken right. about the things that they've always thought, but they just didn't want to be alone. Right. Um, and so I, you know, I think it's really important to take that first step and to realize that it's scary and to realize that you're taking a risk, but to also understand that this is the way change happens and this is the way things improve. So you would say it's worth it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You feel happy? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, as as <laughs> as happy as as one can feel. Oh right. Uh, in in Washington D.C. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially these days. Yeah. Um, well, you know what, Sarah? This has been such an interesting conversation. I I know it's one of those ones that we could go down this rabbit hole for another five hours. Um, I think ultimately, my, you know, my big takeaways from all of this is that at the end of the day, we need to take the subject of religion more seriously than we do as as a species, as a species who has proven time and time again that we do genuinely care about humanity. Uh, if we didn't care about humanity, we wouldn't mobilize when there is a hurricane in one particular part of the world to help those people get food and shelter. Um, or if we didn't care about humanity, 
we wouldn't be trying to find cures for cancer or cures for, for AIDS or any, any, any one of the things that we've tried to find cures for. And so we know at our root as human beings, we do care about each other and we want the world to be a better place. And, and I think that if we do believe that and we say that out loud, that we can't leave the subject of religion out of the conversation because there is too much evidence now that, that, that shows that for all the great work that religion does do, there is uh, a lot of uh, stuff that religion has been responsible for that has not been great for planet Earth. And we can't say that we care and at the same time uh, not bring that part uh, into the conversation. I, I, it's kind of like I, I learned this not too long ago. You can't call yourself an environmentalist and eat beef. And I, th- I thought, oh, damn it, I love beef. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, but it, do- it dawned on me that it, it's a, intellectually that we all know that, that, um, that, that, that livestock and, and farming and, and the way that we've, we, we produce meat on our planet is, is contributing a great deal to global warming. And so um, if we can't say that uh, we're, we can't say that we're environmentalists and, and, and eat beef at the same time, well, the same is true. We can't say that we're humanitarians and not look at the conversation of religion. So um, that was a very odd comparison that I did not expect to make at the end of this podcast but you know what it's there now I can cut it out but I'm not gonna folks it's gonna stay um so thanks Sarah for being a part of this and thanks for the work that you do and thanks for having the courage to to do it and uh and I do wish you luck um if if anyone who's listening to this um wants to get in touch with the work you do is is list the websites or social media the best places for them to go to kind of get more into your world well, um, I'm pretty active on, um, I'm ashamed to say Twitter, um, it's, it's a really, um, it's a jungle, you know, oh, yeah. um, of social media, but, um, uh, it, that's, that's where I share a lot of my thoughts. It's kind of like a diary of mine where I just, I post the things that I care about and, um, the issues that I'm interested in and any news that I think people should be, should be, um, hearing about. Otherwise, if they are interested in the organization, Ex-Muslims of North America, um, they can find us at exmuslims.org. So that's a pretty simple address. And that's also the way, the handle of all of our social media um, uh, activity. So you can find us easily there too as well. And my my Twitter is Sarah the Hater. Um, that yeah that's 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 the way the way that it sounds is what it is. Sarah okay. the Hater. <laughs> Sarah, oh, oh, the as in T-H-E? The yeah, Sarah yeah. The hater. Oh my god. Yeah, well, it was people used to make fun of me for my last name yeah. in middle school as being a hater, right. you know, like they're hating people. So of I just course. thought I'd own it and that's <laughs> I love it. You know what? Make it your own. This is this is it. Um well, those are great ways to uh to be able to follow you and I and I definitely encourage you guys to uh stay in touch with Sarah and to and to follow her work uh because she's doing great work as as you've heard in this podcast. So, Sarah, thanks for being on the show. I very much appreciate it. I wish you all the luck with what you're doing, and I look forward to hearing what's next for you soon. Thanks, Stuart. Thanks for having me on. This was fun. The number you have Thank you for tuning in to The Stuart Knight Show. We hope you've enjoyed this powerful conversation. People are fascinating, and so are you. And the right questions will prove it.